You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 26th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to the programme. Coming up today... It is a remarkable political life to, to read about. It's the kind of career I just don't think you'd have in this world now. Our panellists, Alex von Tunzelmann and Vincent McAvinney, will look back at the legacy of France's former president, Jacques Chirac, who's died at the age of 86. Also, after a vicious debate in the UK's House of Commons, we discuss the consequences of political rhetoric, false claims and the language of division. And a Polish MEP demands vegan food to be served in Parliament canteens. We'll ask how her meteor colleagues will take to a change in menu. Plus... This idea of the young, tech-focused founder who wants to create the next unicorn, that's the idea that's perpetrated by mainstream media of what an entrepreneur looks like. And it's just not true. We introduce Monocle's brand new print title, The Entrepreneurs. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. So we begin the show with a longer look at some of the day's main stories with our news panel joining me in the studio, Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author and screenwriter, and Vincent McAvinney, who's the UK's correspondent with Euronews. Welcome both. Let's pick up on the news that France's former president, Jacques Chirac, has died. He was 86. President Chirac enjoyed one of the longest continuous political careers in Europe, twice president, twice Prime Minister and 18 years as Mayor of Paris. He was a man who said he never wanted to leave. He stuck around. Alex, what were your impressions of Jacques Chirac? He certainly did. I mean, until the end, until the sort of corruption allegations and and trial and and indeed conviction, um, which, of course, people are talking about today. But, I mean, he's also a man who went through enormous political changes along with the century. He started out as a member of the Communist Party and ended up on the political right, started out a Gaullist um, and then ended up sort of supporting federal Europe, although, as he said, um, not so much a United States of Europe as a United Europe of States, that important difference um, that he quoted. And so, and of course, he's also being remembered today for sort of two significant achievements, I mean, particularly opposing the Iraq war, leading really the opposition to that, um, and also for being the first French politician to really recognise his country's role in the Holocaust. So we have um, a figure of a man here who, who enacted enormous change, or made France's image internationally stronger and stronger with his image of the opposition to the Iraq war and, the, and helping France go, go into the, the single currency. Um, Vincent, he was a total commit- political chameleon at home, as Alex has alluded to just there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the first thing that came to my mind when I heard this news was that, uh, you know, his opposition to the Iraq war, how it incensed George Bush. It uh, seems like a, a very simpler time. You know, the word French fries being banned from the White House, freedom fries, because of how strong Chirac was. There's all those great photos of Jacques Chirac pulling people like Tony Blair and and, um, and the other kind of uh, countries that went into the Iraq war into corridors at big international meetings and trying to talk them out of this. Uh, but yeah, if you look at his record at home, he did a lot, you know, things like reducing the presidential term down to five years. He made huge reforms when it came to things uh, like road safety. When you really dig into his record, it really is something that kind of spans all over the place. But I mean, I don't know. It feels like a very 20th century political career. I don't know if you could have this kind of career swinging between, you know, 
restarting nuclear testing in 1995 to the shock of the world to going to an environmentalist in 2002. Uh, you know, his comments on race, very. Di- I don't think he'd be able to survive those kind of comments now where he said in the early 90s he didn't know if Africa was ready uh, for democracy. I think as well about the riots in Le Banlieue on the kind of the end of his term uh, and how badly he kind of handled those. It, it is a remarkable political life to, to read about. It's the kind of career I just don't think you could have in this world now. And just picking up on that idea of belonging to a, an early era. Um, the thing that domestically he's remembered for, um, apart from not really changing France that much, it didn't, you know, living standards didn't improve, unemployment didn't improve. Um, but he was subject to quite a lot of corruption. He had a conviction for it. Um, this was part of a, arguably part of a French political culture. Um, I mean, he took over from Mitterrand. So this was a time when corruption and uh, generally oiling the wheels was just the done thing in France. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure some French people would uh, would take some issue with that. But he, there is a certain way in which Chirac does seem like a sort of, you know, an ultimate Frenchman looking back. I mean, not only the sort of all of that, you know, the little bits on the side, the, the flirting with the ladies, you know, and of course his his look even. I mean, you know, he sort of, we were discussing earlier how really if you called central casting and asked for a French president, um, they'd probably have sent you Chirac, you know, especially when he was younger. He was really, you know, sort of very glamorous. Um I mean, so he sort of, you know, had a certain uh, Gallicness to him, I suppose, um, that perhaps did allow him to get away with more than a less charming man might have done. And he had a lot of charm, didn't he? I mean, looking at the photographs of the last, you know, that have been emerging today, um, Vincent, there's this astonishing one of him uh, sort of kissing the hand of Angela Merkel. Now, that's something yeah, that if very anyone... very young-looking Angela Merkel, have not wearied down by the world yet. <laughs> she's gone googly-eyed at him and she just she melts has, it, And yeah. you just think, which other... the way that she used to look at Obama, just that lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that mountaintop picture? But yeah, I mean, there's some good detail in the biography that, um, you know, he was such a man of the people. Something that is pointed out, you know, Sarkozy and Francois Hollande, the people that followed him, you know, they only did one term. They didn't have the charm he had. He loved going out into the public. He used to shake so many hands. They says that he used to have to put his hands in uh, ice buckets at the end of each day and wear plasters to avoid blisters. So this is someone that really liked to press the flesh and the kind of stunts and, you know, uh, Twitter's kind of been filled with the old political advertisements he had there you know they are so 80s and 90s it is quite remarkable you know him just lying back on a couch saying may we say Chirac you know so it's all of the, all of this kind of stuff it's, it feels and very quintessentially French I wonder yes. whether this is going to prompt some sort of nostalgia for a slightly for a slightly different time I mean in a moment we'll move on to the utter bear pit that we've got at the moment in British politics um, but the idea that you can be a great you can be a charmer but with a very, very strong international image as well. I mean, he was a great European. I mean, you mentioned the idea of not a United States of Europe, but a United Europe of States. This was someone who perhaps belonged to an era when no one really questioned the further integration of Europe. Well, I mean, people always questioned it, but I do think, yes, he'd, and of course he was coming from a Gaullist background. I mean, it was a, it was a move that he made, um, and sort of, you know, perhaps along with the Times or certainly along with one current of the Times. Um, and, and, you know, then he really sort of ended up spearheading that, which, you know, is sort of fascinating. Again, you know, I think as Vincent said earlier, I mean, the, the idea that perhaps you could do that now, I think is much more remote, surely, that to change horses in, you know, sort of in that way, I think would be much more dubious these days. Okay. Yeah, and I think... give, it, give it 10 minutes in British <laughs> politics. 
Yeah. And it shows, you know, maybe a foresight looking, you know, in the time that he was president, you know, collapse of the uh, Soviet Union, the Cold War, looking at how the world was going to rearrange itself. He seems to have had an early view that really, you know, not having a, 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 a too integrated Europe, but a strong Europe in a world where there was only one superpower left, but those on the rise seems like a, a pretty good bit of foresight from him, you know, taking France uh, into the single currency and things like that. They, they ben- did benefit from. But um, yeah, the kind of character I don't think we'd see again. Alex von Tunzelman and Vincent McAvinney there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other news stories we're following today. Thank you, Emma. A report by the whistleblower at the center of the Trump impeachment case says the White House tried to lock down all details of the U.S. president's phone call to Ukraine's leader. In the call, Donald Trump pushed Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate corruption claims involving Joe Biden's son. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam has begun holding talks with members of the public in a bid to resolve the city-state's political crisis. Hong Kong has been gripped by nearly four months of violent protests, and 150 people are now each being given a few minutes to express their views on the matter. Austria will head to the polls this weekend following the collapse of the country's right-wing coalition government. You can hear more about the story in tomorrow's edition of The Globalist, which will be live at 8 a.m. in Vienna or 7 a.m. if you're listening from London. And finally, an ancient Egyptian sarcophagus that was acquired by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City has been repatriated. The stolen antique, which is more than 2,000 years old, was sold to the museum by a global art trafficking network using fake documents. Those are some of the day's news headlines. Now, back to you, Emma. Thank you, Daniel. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio, Alex von Tunzelman and Vincent McAvinney. And we turn now to an altogether different era. Having discussed the departure of Jacques Chirac, we look at modern British politics. Described as a bear pit, a place of fear and loathing, about as nasty as it had ever been. The scenes in the British Parliament yesterday were brutal. This evening, the Prime Minister has continually used pejorative language to describe an Act of Parliament passed by this House. And I'm sure that you would agree, Mr Speaker, that we should not resort to using offensive, dangerous or inflammatory language for legislation that we do not like. And we stand here, Mr Speaker, under the shield of our departed friend, with many of us in this place subject to death threats and abuse every single day. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. The Labour MP there, Paula Sheriff, taking on Boris Johnson in the House and having her accusations shot down by one word, humbug. As MPs took up where they'd left off, there'd been the expectation of perhaps an apology from the government for acting unlawfully and suspending Parliament last month. Instead, there was defiance and rage. Vincent, you were following this. Mm -hmm. It was something else yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've covered Parliament for nine years and I haven't really had an evening like that in the Commons. I've listened to hundreds of hours of debates and I went home last night feeling pretty chilled uh, and sad about the state of things. And, you know, the Speaker has come out, John Burke, today saying in his 22 years in Parliament, he hasn't seen a session like that. The language was deplorable. The emotions were running incredibly high. And to explain to listeners in that clip, the the crest that was being talked about was that of Jo Cox. She was a Labour MP for Batley and Spen. She was murdered the week before the referendum in 2016 by a far-right terrorist uh, who yelled whilst he was shooting her uh, uh, Britain first independence for Britain. It was an absolute, uh, you know, travesty that that happened. Uh, Many people at the time thought that that would possibly... Uh, 
uh, mean that, you know, the referendum, the vote would go to stay. But I was, you know, on the ground around the country that whole time. And it really didn't shift things in the way that we expected. And the way that her name uh, is being in, in, invoked now is because she had a simple message in her opening speech in Parliament is that we have more in common. And she worked hard to work across the aisle. She made hat friends with many Conservative MPs. And, you know, the response of the Prime Minister, I don't think it, it wasn't even, uh, you know, forget whether it was a prime ministerial response. It wasn't even a basic human response. And the the woman who was a friend of Joe Cox, Tracy Braben, and replaced her as an MP after that, begged the prime minister after that exchange that we just heard there to please think about it because other MPs had left the chamber very upset, some of them close to tears. And he said, you can honour Joe Cox by delivering Brexit. It was incredible stuff. I mean, Alex, you've studied politics, parliament and and this kind of world for a long, long time. Where is it, do you think, that the wheels actually came off in terms of basic decency to, to fellow human beings? I mean, this is a combative arena. Let's not be, let's not, you know, be in, in any doubt. But a different turn seems to have been taken. Yes, and I think we'd be making a mistake if we thought this was an accident. I think that this is quite deliberate, actually, by Boris Johnson, because what serves him is to stoke the anger in the country and to stoke people up and to get this idea into people's heads that it's about Parliament versus the people. Um, I don't think there's any chance in the world of him apologising and backing down. I think it will escalate. And as a result, um, Vincent, having been in you know, looking at the Commons for the last nine years, where, in what way do you think this is going to escalate? Uh, I'll give you an example. I used to stand on the green in, you know, 2010, 2011. I would bring uh, MPs. We'd walk over. We'd do interviews. They wouldn't be stopped. They wouldn't be harassed. People might uh, recognise an MP and ask them some nice questions and be polite to them. There are MPs that can't walk over to the green now without police escorting them. There are MPs that have had to have safety measures built into their homes, panic alarms. They are getting regular death threats. They are not playing lightly with the fact that many of them are receiving a lot of threats. You just have to go on social media to see what's going to be said in public to them. But some of them have been really threatened. One of them, there was a plot uh, earlier in the year that she was going to be killed by far-right terrorists and it was stopped at the last minute. Uh, And so the change is that MPs really do feel under threat. And whilst Boris Johnson is playing with this, saying, trying to build, you know, because he attacked the judiciary yesterday for not just the decision, but said the Supreme Court was politicised, he is trying to build this people versus establishment uh, election up. But I think it is very dangerous. Uh, And if something does happen, which would be tragic again, I think this will be firmly played back at him and pointed to him. He escapes a lot, uh, but I think this last night was a real watershed moment. And it's all right, you know, his girlfriend, his former wife, his four, five or six children, however many there are, all have police protection. He can feel safe, but there's a lot of MPs uh, that don't feel very safe at the moment. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Boris Johnson and uh, the way that the rhetoric of politics has developed in the last few weeks. Uh, Boris Johnson has been described as a man who has an interesting relationship with the truth, and he's arguably living in a perfect time for him, given the rise of fake news. A phrase sold heavily by Donald Trump, how hard has it made life for today's reporters? Let's get a taste of the rather hostile approach taken by President Donald Trump during a press conference with Boris Johnson earlier this week in New York when a journalist asked the British Prime Minister if he was going to resign. That was a very nasty question from a great American reporter. Was that, was that, was that an American reporter? American reporter. I thought it a good one, but I think he was asking a question to be fair that a lot of British reporters would have asked. Well, that was John Boris Johnson uh, defending the art of journalism there. Uh, no great surprise, Alex, because Johnson is was a journalist. 
Yes, and certainly one who wasn't too scared to use incendiary language then either, um, or to make things up. Uh, famously, a lot of them about the EU and bendy bananas and all sorts of things. I mean, and perhaps we're about to see the consequences of what happens when you put an inflammatory journalist in the position of being a prime minister. Knowing quite a few journalists myself, I'm not sure it's a career path that many of them should really undertake. Um, but this is a very different job. And I actually agree with what Vince said earlier, that we're in a very dangerous time. Um, and I do think that playing with this stuff maybe electoral positioning, maybe politics, but the consequences of some of this can be severe. And in that clip, we heard him sort of step back from Trump a bit. But then if you can't step back from Trump, where are you? I mean, you know, this is it's gone... The shift that we've seen just in the last few years, really, with Trump and now with Johnson is, you know, to a very different manner of politics. You know, it's very much on the surface. Explain a little bit more about what you mean by the consequences of this. Well, the fact is that if you... You know, what you're seeing is them... You know, and actually, I mean, although I think you can be too simplistic about comparisons between Trump and Johnson, they're actually quite different in lots of ways. And, you know, we do need to be more complex about that. But what both of them are doing is, you know, really smashing their way through big institutions and through things where, you know, in, in the US, of course, the Constitution is written, ours is not. But there are, is a great deal of understanding and really a lot of it operates on trust um, and on the expectation that people will behave decently and you break that down, you keep breaking that down, things change quite radically. And we've had Tory MPs yesterday, for instance, calling for things like the abolition of the Supreme Court now, um, or politically appointed judges. I mean, these changes have big consequences. And I think often it's, you know, a sort of very a quick reaction to something that has upset them that, in fact, could really spark a very different outcome than they think. Just to add to that, I mean, the idea that you uh, you attack a court for being called to scrap it and then call for a new Supreme Court, like in America, where they're appointed by politicians last night, it just blew me away, the 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 false logic in that. But I think just on this point about language and journalism, uh, I'll just say two things. The first is about a former journalist. Boris Johnson was a journalist for many years. He lost his first job in journalism as a writer on The Times because he lied. He made up a quote from his own godfather about a story in the Tower of London and it ran in the Times newspaper. Now, there is one golden rule with journalism and it's don't make stuff up. Uh, and he was fired from that and he went to The Telegraph and he wrote, you know, he's continued to work between times as a journalist who wrote a very inflammatory col column which he's refused to apologise for in which he compared Muslim women to bank robbers and letterboxes and that was just this year and I want to say there's a working journalist right now and it shows how dangerous this is because her name uh, is Naga Manchetti she's a BBC presenter on BBC Breakfast earlier in the year Donald Trump uh, said the words go back home that is we all know a US government as a racist trope in their employment rules, if a member of working, someone from the US government said that to a colleague, they would be fired on that. It is clearly a racist trope. Naga Manchetti was presenting BBC Breakfast. Her colleague asked her what she thought about that language. She's a British Asian woman. She said, yes, it's racist. I've heard that term my whole life. It is racist. The BBC has reprimanded her for breaking their guidelines on bias. That is not bias. That is standing outside in the rain and saying... It's raining. So how, as a journalist, do you try and navigate this this boldness that seems to have um, been, sort of like been been embraced by politicians when it comes to lying, when it comes to using language that has been widely accepted as unacceptable? I mean, I you. <sighs> It's it's so hard because, especially in this country with Brexit, you know, I think with political interviews is to. You know, I, I often think about uh, when I covered the coalition b b here between 2010 and 2015 and what we used to think was chaos then. If myself as a journalist, 
was conducting this interview now and I didn't know what had happened in the space between, I constantly just think, what would 2014 me think of what is being said now? Because language is being used so carelessly, like saboteurs and betrayal and trying to invoke this patriotism that I think you just have to keep calling it out. And one of the only ways, I mean, you know, there was an incident this morning where James Cleverly, who is the leader of the uh, Tory party, uh, said, uh, oh, the prime minister didn't say a betrayal. Uh, and then he was quoted back to him by Michelle Hussain, BBC Journal, saying, no, he said, but this is, you're betraying people. And he said, well, he didn't say betrayal. I mean, that oh, is, uh, you know, that is Splitting hairs. I mean, that yeah. made me stop. I, was, I heard that and I sort of stopped what I was doing to think, oh, goodness me, um, where are we going with this? Um, Alex, we've, we, we, are li- we are losing the, uh, the, the, the common speaker, John Burko, next month. Uh, many people rather heartbroken uh, at the fact that one of the leading players is leaving the, the screens. Um, but the, those who wish to replace him all say that they want to bring Parliament together to have a more conciliatory approach, to have a more respectful and polite place. Where is the possibility of such a, a violent and brutal space actually finding itself being calmed down? Where are the solutions here? I think it's super hard to do that, actually. And if you look historically at other examples, restoring civility is not that easy. In fact, anybody will know that who has had a drunken party and then tried to calm it down. I'm afraid once these things are out of the box, it's very hard to put them back in again. And um, I think it will potentially come when the voters decide they want to vote for a more civilised type of politician, um, which at the moment they show very little sign of doing. So um, it's a question of, you know, this this will respond and it will, es- and that's exactly why I say I think this will escalate and escalate. I don't think there's an easy way down from this. Um, I do think, in fact, I mean, Burko really has in many ways given a gift to the current parliament by letting them appoint a speaker now before a new parliament comes in that may, of course, be much more extreme um, in in any way that would be quite unpredictable. Um, so I think my hope would be that you could get someone in who was reasonably <laughs> kind of a decent influence um, at this point and then see how that goes from I mean, there. On that point, I think, you know, one of the leading contenders is Harriet Harman. She's a future, uh, sorry, she was a past effectively deputy prime minister under Gordon Brown. She is the mother of the House, which means the longest serving female MP, and she is going for it. Uh, And she is someone who, in recent years, I've even thought could actually run for Labour leadership again. I mean, she's still that respected and well-liked figure. She's still on top of her game. Um, But the fact that I think she's wanting to step up as the Speaker of the House shows that maybe she is quite worried about parliamentary democracy. Uh, And, you know, you look back at how, unfortunately, Parliament is still very pale, male and stale. Uh, And a lot of those people on the back benches um, can be brought to heel uh, by a woman quite well. And if you look back at Betty Boothroyd in the 1980s, clips of her on YouTube, she knew how to bring them to heel. And I think Harriet Harman won't put up with anything. Uh, and she's got the experience and depth of knowledge in Parliament, even longer than John Burko, to be able to run that place the way it will need. If we end up with having an extreme Parliament on both on both sides, you know, if we've got extreme momentum MPs in and extreme uh, Brexit Party MPs in, you know, it is getting... It, 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 there is something... Something will break eventually. There will need to be some kind of reset. It's just hard to see how that will be done. Finally, could the contents of an MP's lunchbox exact widespread change in Europe's eating habit? Sylvia Sporek is a new Polish member of the European Parliament. She's also vegan. And when she tried to get a meal in the canteen, her only option was a plate of chips or French fries or indeed freedom fries if you're George Bush and some salad. Great if you're a rabbit or a seven-year-old, but not perhaps if you're in charge of representing your citizens. Uh, It made us all think about um, your favourite government subsidised canteens. Uh, We've all been in 
French work canteens, British work canteens, parliamentary work canteens. What's it like? That what's it? What's life like in there, Alex? Well, you know, it's a it's a real mix. <laughs> I haven't been in the EU ones. My favourite is the canteen at National Archives 2, just outside Washington, D.C., which is where the State Department and CIA archives are, which has a fabulous selection of cuisines and really very good food. And would Sylvia Spurrock <laughs> find herself a vegan option in there? She would be fine. Yeah, that would be no problem. Um, but the EU clearly needs to uh, get with the programme on that because really, you know, if we're talking about environmental change, and I mean, anyone who has been vegetarian or vegan and travelled to France knows that this is, or Germany, actually knows that this can be a real uphill struggle but uh, and chips and salad I'm afraid is quite often offered. I fear um, you're on a hiding to nothing if you're taking that option there <laughs> Alex and um, you on the other hand uh, Vincent you, you've you been inside a, a member of parliament's um, canteen and yep. you could have sympathy with Sylvia Spurek. Yeah do you know what I'm going to fly the flag for Britain on this one because in this you know in, when we're looking at Jacques Chirac he said oh you can't trust people that cook that bad do you know what I think Britain does convenience food better and healthy convenience food, better than anywhere else in Europe. I travel around Europe working. The EU canteens are awful. What, what can and you get for lunch? Tell, take us in, for lunch oh, in a European country. Well, uh, it's all, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's chips and salad. That is the, the vegetarian option in, in the common, you know, the, the, I've had bad fish there. I've had awful rubbery chicken there. The House of Commons in the UK has, you know, there is a lot of vegan food, a lot of vegetarian food. It's fresh salad bars. And also, you know, the, the food is good because there, there is a, a wonderful, uh, one of the Jamaican West Indian heritage chefs in the Commons introduced the Commons to jerk chicken. You can get jerk chicken every day of the week in the House of Commons. It is amazing. They now sell the recipe uh, and kits for it because it's so good. You can have stir fry things. You can have all kinds of food. I mean, and I, I work for a company which is headquartered in France. The canteen there is not great. Uh, and, you know, I got reprimanded by a French colleague because I thought the food was so bad being served up that I went sandwiches and crisps and fruit, which I was told that is not a lunch. And I was like, well, it's better than what's being served here. So I think Britain actually does... Uh, public uh, canteen food quite well, actually. I've worked for a French company where you have a cheese bar and wine. Oh, very During surprised. lunch. It's absolutely fine. Just but, what you but, need for broadcasting. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Oils the wheels perfectly. Um, but it's that whole idea of everything that we've spoken about is heavily subsidised, whether it's a private broadcasting company that you've you worked for or indeed um, the, the, the local parliament. Should we really be subbing our MPs um, to have jerk chicken? This, this is the biggest <laughs> mistake that people make about this. You're not subsidising the MPs. In a place like Parliament, you only have 650 MPs. You have 4,000 staff, including police officers, uh, minimum wage cleaners, researchers who get paid a pittance for the work they do in Parliament. When you're in Parliament, they are secure bubble zones. They're hard to get in and out of. You're often working long hours. And in Westminster, there isn't really many options around because it's all kind of formal buildings. There aren't that many canteens. It's canteens, and in the European Parliament, it's the same. It's not for the, you know, because MEPs and MPs don't often eat in them that much. It's for the staff that work there. Because you're, when I worked for an MP, this is a decade ago, I ate three meals a day because I was in at seven and I didn't leave until nine o'clock at night because of the sitting hours of the chamber. When you're doing that, it's, it's, you know, that is who you're subsidising it for. Vincent McAvinney and Alex von Tunzelman, thank you very much indeed for joining me in the studio. In a moment, we introduce Monocle's brand new annual magazine, The Entrepreneurs, and we get the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. Stay tuned. The 
ousting of WeWork's co-founder Adam Newman from his role as CEO this week shows one thing, the founder myth, that dewy-eyed faith in the infallibility of Silicon Valley's visionary first generation is perhaps foundering. For more on this and to discuss Monocle's brand new print volume, The Entrepreneurs, Ben Ryland heard from Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey. He began by asking her to talk a little bit more about what we mean as founder myth. Well, I think this idea of the young, tech-focused founder who wants to create the next unicorn, that's the idea that's perpetrated by mainstream media of what an entrepreneur looks like. And it's just not true. And I think that myth is now dying. And we're seeing that those aren't the most successful entrepreneurs or the kind of entrepreneurship that we should be aspiring to. So, Venetia, what do you think the rapid rise and perhaps flattening out of companies like WeWork and, of course, Uber tells us about the state of this sector of business that... Well, I guess we once might have referred to it as the disruptors. Well, I think this age of companies that don't have to show themselves to be profitable, that seek evaluation based on the fact that they're tech companies. WeWork was very insistent that it was a tech company, even though, let's face it, it's in real estate. I think that age is coming to an end. But the idea of disruptors, I think that is key to what entrepreneurs are often trying to do. Not always, but I do think that idea of, even if we don't like that word and it is a little bit odious, that idea will continue to be around. There are a lot of traditional industries that are still ripe to be to be changed and to evolve. And entrepreneurs are essential in that. Monocle's new print volume is out on shelves today. To paraphrase a great Broadway musical, Venetia, how does one succeed in business for those who are really trying? (laughs) Well, yeah, so this magazine touches on a couple of things that we've just been talking about. So it looks at how the modern entrepreneur is is not this person that we think it is, but is actually much older in their late 30s, early 40s. They're founding smaller companies. They They want to do good in the world. They have a real social conscience and sustainability, obviously, is a huge concern. People are thinking about how we'll treat old people in the future. So we've got a bit of a deep dive into that, but we've got loads of other tips and bits of advice for people how to name your company and to get that name right, because that can go pretty wrong, as one example shows, Titanic. Titanic. Not great. Um, We've also got tips for what to invest in. So from Cannabis 2.0 to sport tech startups, we've got obviously the best furniture for your office, how to dress the modern work wardrobe, and also where to live that you can find business opportunities, but also what we hold so dear here at Monocle, quality of life. Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, was talking to Ben Ryland. And The Entrepreneurs, Monocle's latest annual imprint, is on newsstands now. Well, that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to our producers, Daniel Bache, our studio managers, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time, 1300 if you're listening in Toronto. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>